Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. And welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, today we don't have Horace with us, Horace is traveling, but I do uh, have Nick Lovett here from the Christchurch City Council. How are you doing today, Nick? Yeah, very uh, very good, thanks. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, not at all, not at all. Uh, it's exciting to have you on. Uh, we, we had a, a, a dinner with uh, Horace and Nick and a range of others when we got to Christchurch for the TTEC conference. And um, we, Horace and I were both very impressed with your, your understanding and um, thinking through the regulatory situation in Christchurch. So I thought maybe what would be useful is, um, do you want to just talk us through um, your background and, and uh, how you came to be working at Christchurch and then what your role is there at the council? Sure thing. So, um, yeah, my name's uh, Nick Lovett. I'm a senior uh, policy planner uh, for transport strategy at the Christchurch City Council. I've been working in transportation policy uh, and analysis for about six years and um, I started off my career in Toronto, Ontario, Canada working as uh, working as an analyst for the regional transportation authority there and I suppose that's where I sort of started following many of these trends um, and, and sort of you know disruptive transportation um, business models and things like that uh, and uh, moved to Christchurch in late 2015 and have yep. been there um, sort of following these things and sort of involved in the uh, sort of policy development for the uh, sort of Lime Scooter trial and now sort of broader policy thinking around micromobility. Yeah, awesome. And I guess one of the things that uh, Horace and I were really noticing when we were in Christchurch is that um, you know, post earthquake, there is a really um, there's, there's there's been an opportunity for Christchurch to really get quite innovative in terms of how it's thinking about its transport mix. Um, can you talk through um, you know how how you're thinking or how the council is thinking through that in in Christchurch? Yeah, sure. The um, I think something uh, the genesis of it um, comes back to immediately after the earthquake. There was the share an idea campaign. And it was a, a very broad consultation with the public to understand what they wanted to see from the city. And, you know, from that, plans were developed, including sort of transport plans and transport chapters of uh, recovery plans. And it set the broad direction um, about what, what sort of people wanted to see um, with, with the city rebuild. And some key themes about that, you know, as, you know spe- uh, specifically in the central city were, you know, fewer vehicles people wanted to see you know, more green space, more people-friendly uh, spaces. And that led to, um, I guess, some infrastructure that you would have seen when you were down, you know, a slow uh, urban core of 30 kilometres an hour, you know, uh, lots of shared paths, slow streets, uh, separated cycle infrastructure. And I think that's really, um, I guess, put the city at a, you know, a couple of steps ahead with um, the arrival of uh, micromobility because the, the infrastructure that's there in the urban form is kind of well-suited to these sort of small lightweight devices that are, you know, moving around at a lot, you know, slower speeds than uh, general traffic. So I think that, um, yeah. I think that's kind of, that's kind of helped uh, for, for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, you know, talk me through the Lyme trial and then how, how you guys are thinking about it. And I want to frame this up as well, which is when uh, I've been talking to, to Michael Nucker, uh, Michael Nucker is at the, he's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times, he's done the news with me, um, and he's at Ride Report. And Ride Report builds the software that looks, uh, it's like the reporting software for um, uh, shared scooter operators to be able to provide their information in a way that's digestible to councils. So as far as I understand, you guys use it in Christchurch and they use it a couple other places around New Zealand. They also use it in New York City. Um, uh, the Portland guys use it. Uh, Madrid uses it. Austin uses it. So they, they obviously got quite a good coverage around the world. And, and Michael, uh, not to flatter you here, Nick, but he does say that you're the best regulator he's had to deal with. So I'm really curious about how you guys have thought about rolling out um, these trials and what and what you're trying to do in Christchurch that might be um, a little bit more progressive. Yeah, sure. Um, I think um, what what maybe was a little bit unique in, in this instance, you know, local authorities tend to move pretty slowly. Everyone sort of, you know, there's a you know, big body of knowledge um, that's shared around sort of practice, you know, codes of practice and guidelines and things. And we saw, you know, micro, this sort of shared micromobility model um, expand to New Zealand, you know, a lot quicker than um, some other things had arrived, you know, such as ride sharing or peer-to-peer car sharing. And at that point, I, th- I don't think any um, local authority had wholly figured out what the regulatory framework should look like for this, what the standards should look like. Um so we couldn't really afford to sort of sit back and wait for um, the information to trickle through in terms of a you know best practice document or guidelines. We kind of had to um, move pretty quickly and figure out what um, you know what the, what the what the effects were. So we we also recognised that in a city that um, you know is constantly trying to uh, recover from you know uh, you know a central city that's got uh, much fewer uh, people living and working in it than there were pre-quake um we also needed to take as many opportunities as we could to help the help those kind of policy objectives align and um look for look for opportunities to bring people into the city basically so we were pretty bullish about it we said yep we can you know have a trial most cities have trials for these sort of things and we knew we had uh, you know three months to figure out what on earth was this micro mobility thing? You know, was it you know a friend or a foe uh, to cities to you know transport policy objectives? And um, we were in a bit of a fortunate position because we had done a lot of thinking around uh, dockless bike share and whether or not that would arrive in the city. So we had a good understanding of what the enablers were in terms of uh, permitting frameworks, uh, general bylaws, and public places bylaws and things. So we moved pretty quickly to say, yep, we can set it up. Here's a, here's a permit. Um, we'll make a decision in three months as to what the future of this thing is. And over that time, we um, you know, got a reference group together um, with a number of citizens and officers from other agencies, interest groups. Um, they were sort of there to evaluate you know, what they were hearing and seeing on the ground, to raise questions, to interrogate the pilot, basically, to see... Uh, what needed yep. changing, and uh, after three months, we, you know, worked with, um, you know, all the data that we'd been provided, um, you know, firsthand through the operator, and also through um, through Ride Report as well. So they had that kind of uh, third party validation was helpful as well, and we were able to sort of um, mm. quite quickly sort of understand that, 
you know, what the sort of usage patterns were and how these things were being used. Um, and I, th I suppose what kind of helped as well was, um, you know, very, very topical uh, in a lot of places where these things arrive. Uh, so lots of media coverage, lots of media profile. And I guess we we're able to leverage that to communicate out when we we're putting surveys and things out. We're getting really, really high rates of responses. So really confident uh, uh, sample sizes that we could say, look, people have watched this for a couple of months. They've responded to our survey. Um, overwhelmingly, they kind of are pretty positive about it. You know, there's a few interest groups yep. and sectors of the community that have concerns. So we knew where we could direct our focus uh, and look at things that we needed to work on. And I suppose that's that's kind of left us um, where we are today. This is uh, six, seven months since um, we, you know, most people in the city had seen a e-scooter before. Um, and I think yes. there's, uh, you know, sort of a, a growing uh, feeling of, um, I, I guess, more easiness about it. Um, they've kind of found their feet in, um, in terms of operation and how they fit within the city's fabric and how people are using them to get around. Um, but there's still, I think, there's a few more gaps and there's a few more things we need to work on. But um, that sort of, I guess, brings us up to yeah where we, where we are today. That's That was sort of a, a pretty pretty hectic few months, to just sort of pulling everything we could possibly pull together to make sense and make some policy conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I found uh, very interesting having read the Christchurch uh, discussion papers is um, a, a lot of the kind of the primary concerns that I think a lot of people have, at least uh, initially when scooters are deployed around safety, etc. You were able to relatively, you, well, you were able to kind of look through because New Zealand obviously has the, the uh, ACC database, which is a sort of socialized and we have uh, uh, socialized insurance for anybody who's injured. Um, and uh, that, that actually provides a really comprehensive data set on, on, on safety. Can you comment on um, how you guys have thought through safety as, as a regulator? Yeah, uh, certainly. I mean, before, um, before we issued the permit, we, um, we did a bit of research looking into, you know, how are we going to monitor that aspect of the pilot, this sort of safety question? And um, I guess the thing we, we, we reiterated was, the yardstick in New Zealand that is used to uh, monitor road safety, um, you know, uh, from local authorities right up to the Ministry of Transport, is is a is a metric called deaths and serious injuries. And uh, serious injury is is more or less uh, something that requires someone to be, you know, um, taken away from from a scene of an, an accident and sort of held in hospital for you know a period of time. And it's all recorded in a, a police crash database. And the database is very very old, and it's got a you know, a number of drop downs in it. Um, you know, it's sort of you know sixteen bit type thing that does not really have space in it to sort of describe at length what an e-scooter was, or you know what micro, you know how the sort of micro mobility thing contributed to an accident. So we knew we weren't going to be able to rely on traditional tools to um, to understand this, um, and it was. I, I guess we are fortunate to have that the, the sort of national insurer for all accident uh, compensation and injury. It's all recorded across every doctor and general practitioner and emergency room department in the country, all uploaded, you know, virtually daily to a, to a database. And we're able to pull these reports out, um, you know, fairly quickly, you know, every couple of weeks to understand where it was tracking. And in the context of you know, other injuries that we were seeing through the same system, bicycle injuries, skateboard injuries, um, you know, they were sort of, they were sizable but you know just a, a small fraction um, of, of the injuries that were that were happening 
and mostly most of them were were the minor injuries. So these weren't injuries that were life threatening in any way. Um, you know, mostly um, scrapes, bruises, um, a few a few fractures, um, and surprisingly, a few head injuries relative to uh, what else we what else we were sort of seeing with bicycles and skateboards and things like that. So it was a relief uh, in, in some instances to kind of you know look at all the, the this coverage around the world about you know the sort of risk that's that's posed. But I guess it's important to understand that um, in terms of you know transport policy and transport road safety, um, the the number one um, I, I guess threat to life and limb uh, are automobile accidents, and you know those those are where we kind of need to direct our efforts. Into reducing harm on the roads, and it would would have been kind of maybe um, a little um, misdirected to take resources away from you know road safety, road policing, and uh, focus on e-scooters when you know we were kind of um, validated knowing that our road safety plans and road safety action plans focusing on reducing those harm were directed in the right places. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's um, there's as you say, there was a lot of focus on this and, and certainly in the media in New Zealand and you can see it in the US as well. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are, um, well, again, still early data, um, but trying to understand what those injury rates actually look like um, before you can go and roll out what would be, you know, trying to not go for knee-jerk reactions in terms of, um, hey, we want to ban all of these things completely um, because there might be getting a couple of people who are hurt anecdotally. Um, I think as a as an intelligent approach. Um, I'm curious from your perspective um, for for regulators. Uh, sorry for like a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are entrepreneurs, and one of the one of the key things that I think um, that I think the shared scooter operators and shared bike operators, the, the kind of the Chinese bike share operators had done previous to this you'd hope that they would have learned uh, from that one, but oftentimes they haven't, um, is that the, 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 the kind of, they took a, an approach, at least initially, of being relatively aggressive. And you could see that in Santa Monica, the way that they rolled out in California into San Francisco, et cetera, uh, where there was kind of scooters all over the place. And um, that really kind of graded a lot of the gears of the citizens in those in those cities where those uh, initially those scooters were being deployed um but subsequently as well um it's kind of caused this reaction for for cities to be like hey no uh, you can't you know deploy the uber and the the lift handbook of, of just sort of going and expanding into these places and we're going to issue permits and they actually have the ability to enforce that um and so what i'm curious about from your perspective is as a regulator who's, hey, look, you're actually quite progressive. You're thinking about this. You want this. You want micromobility to be in your city. Um, what are the kind of key considerations that you think an entrepreneurs who are looking to launch into cities should be considering and, and, and thinking about when they go to a council um, and are trying to engage with them around, hey, we want to deploy shared fleets into this into the into your city. Yeah, I mean, it's a really it's a really good uh, it's a really good question. I think um, that. Uh, I guess the, the answer they may, may not be thrilled to hear is um, one of those things to expect or to consider is, is is the pace of change for some of these regulators when new things come along that don't um, fit neatly into those existing frameworks. So patience is something I, I guess to consider. Um, and I think that's 
in part what um, led to some of these uh, business models with uh, Dockless Bike Share and uh, in San Francisco in particular, when there's a lot of pressure uh, for these companies to expand into these new markets, um, they're not ready to um, wait for permission there. Um, I guess probably going to look to uh, beg for forgiveness later, and so I think I I, I think you're, you're you're right in um, assessing that 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 did kind of great um, you know a lots of public authorities and regulators and um, you know a, a broad section of, of the public and the community as well. Um, I think in, in New Zealand that um, that would not have gone down well, and I guess fortunately lots of these companies have been engaging with um, authorities at the central government and local government level for a number of months now. And um, I think the other thing to consider is that, you know, in part with that patience is kind of the, that working relationship. Lots of uh, authorities and regulators are going to need, you know, help to come to terms with, you know, what what this is, what it means. Um, you know how it fit. You know, um, you know, have that kind of two-way learning experience, um, and that might sound quite frustrating when you, I guess, just want to get out and deliver and test from day one. But you're, you're going to, you know, ultimately, if you're going to operate in a, in a public place, uh, like lots of these business models do, you know, the community feel very strongly about that, and so you kind of need to bring the public along with you as well. And mm. in part, that's going to be you know, um, the broader public and communicating to them. But, you know, a lot of that is going to be through uh, through local authorities, municipalities, city councils, things like that as well. And I think if you move out of step of any one of those, that's where you get the discord. Um, so whether it be within, you know, certain uh, interest groups of the public, you know, they can take a, a, a lot longer to, um, to bring along with you or to um, kind of see eye to eye on some of these issues. Um, but it's going to be one of these these things that's iterative, and there's going to be a lot of handholding and bringing up to speed. So, yeah, yeah. I I think um I I don't know if you've seen the the announcement uh, regarding the Bird Zero or the Bird leasing program that they have in San Francisco. So Bird has come out and said, look, for we we don't have a permit to operate, um, but what we will do is give you for twenty five dollars a month a bird uh, charged and outside your place every morning, and uh, only you can unlock it. And it's yours for the day. And then at the in the evening, you just leave it at the front of your place and we'll collect it, charge it, make sure it's all maintained and then um, and come back and do the same thing the next day. And so the thing that I can see, you know, is that that goes completely outside of the caps of these uh, these city permits because it's just, hey, people are going to have these, um, they're going to have access to these vehicles. And, and, and so I hear you when you say you need to take patience, but I'm also curious when you know, hey, we're seeing exponential bike sales, not only in New Zealand, but if you look at it in the States and in Europe, you know, those numbers are going through the roof. So there's going to be a lot of owned micromobility in the form of e-bikes, but also as well in the form of these scooters, you know, they're only seven, six, five hundred dollars, you know. Um, and f- for you guys, you have control over maybe, um, in that sense, you're regulating for the scooters on a shared system. But if, if the model itself starts proving out and you start seeing these vehicles on the road, how are we going to be able to bring those um, those decision-making processes um, that happen at the council level around, you know, you can't just kind of come along and say to someone, you can't use the vehicle anymore. It's like, no, they're entitled to use the vehicle. But what we're going to find is that the, the, the infrastructure for the numbers that we might start to see in a year or two years or three years actually becomes woefully inadequate. 
and our planning cycles around how we build infrastructure and most of the OECD is actually really slow. Like, you know, it takes a long time to go and get bike lanes built. How do you see um, those two things squaring? Yeah, I mean, that, um, I mean that, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, towards the end there, you sort of said, um, you know, the sort of the planning process and the infrastructure delivery is, you know, it's not, per- it's not fit for purpose or it's not perfect. I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of um, practitioners and professionals in the space, urban planners, transport planners, they know this, you know, that we know that, um, you know, even what we have today uh, is not perfect. You know, there's, there's, there's ways it can be improved, there's ways it can be done better. Um, but the fact is we're kind of left with, you know, legacy decisions upon legacy decisions that result in, you know, the urban fabric and the infrastructure we have today. So the bird, um, the bird zero kind of leasing announcement is, is really, really interesting and in that, you're right. It, it, it's no longer this is a commercial activity trading in a public place. You know, like a street trading permit. They've just got this sort of lease to own model, and they're kind of cheekily parking it on the public sidewalk outside your house. And the thing that is parked outside most people's houses on the public realm that they enjoy the benefit of keeping there uh, for a long time is their own private vehicle. So cities were, you know, over. 70 years, 100 years, we've kind of come to expect this level of service that I can park my vehicle outside my house. And, you know, even though it's a sort of public place, um, we've kind of culture, you know, come to accept this as a cultural norm. And, you know, perhaps Bird are being very clever and trying to exploit that um, almost like level of hypocrisy when, you know, I don't know if the city is pushing back saying, no, you can't do that. But, they're starting to draw some parallels with some of these processes and, and ways of doing things that aren't perfect and could be done better. You know, there are, you know, big subsidies effectively if you can park your car outside your house for free. Um, and they're sort of saying, well, how can you park a, you know, two ton, 25 square meter box of metal but you have a problem with this uh, 15 kilo, <laughs> you know, half square meter uh, e-scooter. So, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. And I think when I, when I was talking about patience, um, I, I think those are the types of things that it's going to take a while for, uh, you know, institutions, you know, the penny to drop and to, them to realize, uh, you know, this isn't perfect. So I think there's a difference between the way we do things today and because we've always done them for a very long time that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way of doing it. Um, but it is very, very hard to change uh, those kind of cultural norms and expectations. So I think I think it's it's, it's kind of happening both ways. Um, you, you have players like Bird that are coming in, sort of really challenging this at every angle and every aspect. And, um, you know, maybe initially uh, there are authorities and cities that, um, that push back and sort of try and protect the status quo. But over time, you can see how that kind of, that those two things get blended together, and you know you start to see some sort of um, some pretty radical change to the status quo happening. Yeah, and I'm curious for you, like how quickly, as you say, like we've got Christchurch as an example, but you're seven months into this into this trial um, with shared scooters, and it just strikes me as how quickly this has shifted culturally. And I say this coming from Uber, uh, you know, my my experience with Uber was. We, when we launched in New Zealand, we, um, we operated inside of the regulatory framework and then the, the pace of change the government was um, proposing for the new licensing regime was too slow, so we went and operated outside of the regulatory regime for a while. 
And, um, you know, it, there were a lot of people pushing and saying, look, this is really, really bad. But it's like, look, change takes time. And actually what you find is that the public will catch up once they see that this actually is possible. You know, the, um, and, and the part that I think Horace and I are really trying to dig through with this podcast and, and the work that we're doing is, how quickly can that happen? Because we're seeing the, the ex- like we are just starting to look at the numbers of, you know, what we think is going to be possible with trips and what we think is going to be possible in terms of vehicle numbers. And they're like bananas, you know, it's, it's, we could see this being, um, we, we can see this being trillions of trips, um, out of the sort of the, the vehicle, the, the, out of the trips that are taken globally. Um, and even at one fiftieth of, of the trips, that's a, you know, a trillion trips a year, um, or sorry, a trillion kilometers taken a year, um, that, that would transform downtown cities. But, you know, we think that's realistically possible to do within three to five years. But you think about how a city is going to be able to adapt to that. Um, and I just, there's part of me, which is like, I'm just really curious to see how this is going to play out. And, and I think you're right to say that the hypocrisy um, is starting to be uh, kind of pointed out that, hey, we've got these entire cities that have been built around the automobile and their parking is particularly um, obnoxious <laughs> because it is such a such an like an inefficient and vagrant use of space um, but yeah we yeah I, I don't think we've, there's anything else to add there other than I just think it's going to be very interesting to watch yeah. and I think cities that really embrace it will, will, will do well yeah I think um, I, I think I, I, I kind of see it interesting you know, interesting being you know a transportation professional and you know someone that's you know studied this and looked at this for a number of years and you know part of a um you know you know professional you know association you know the new zealand transportation group we have annual conferences we talk about these things there's newsletters you know that that body of knowledge you know is replicated all around the world and um you know nacto uh is a is a really good organization in in north america um the association for city transportation officials They've been sharing, you know, their ideas and visions for how we can make, you know, cities better, more livable, more sustainable places. And when you talk about, you know, the potential and the number of trips, this isn't something that's uh, that's new to a lot of people or, or not. You know, we know that, you know, in New Zealand, 60% of all trips to work are less than five kilometres. Um, we know that there is, you know, latent demand for alternative modes if, if, if we just get the, the infrastructure mix right. We know that, you know, you don't need to haul around a two-ton box of metal uh, to, to do these small trips to pick up, um, y- y- you know, a bottle of milk or something like that. But we we, we understand what the challenges were, and, and, and I think, you know, I, I keep pointing to what's, hap- what's happened in, uh, you know, cycling over, you know, the last decade, for instance. Many cities around the world have invested heavily in cycle infrastructure, and it, it's paying real dividends uh, in terms of mode shift, getting people out of cars and uh, onto alternative modes. Um, you know, it's happened in London, it's happened in New York. Um, you know, it's happening in you know all the all these sort of major cities around the world that traditionally didn't have a cycling culture, and that is one of the barriers to to this 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 big shift. You know, you talk about masses and masses of trips that could be um, taken away from you know single occupant vehicles and put into micromobility they've known for a long time that the same is true for cycling 
but there is this cultural barrier. There's a mm-hmm. cultural uptake for, to it. So as well as putting the infrastructure, there's been lots of work with grassroots advocacy groups trying to sort of normalize this. And e- even lots of them sort of don't even like the word cyclist. You know, they're being told to use the term people on bikes or people on foot to kind of humanize the whole thing. And yeah, that I think that is the interesting thing with micromobility. It's so new. It doesn't have a culture or, you know, it doesn't have any baggage or stigma with it. You know, people are kind of naturally curious about it and, and they've gravitated towards it. You know, and some people have um, rejected it, but um, I find that the interesting thing. There are definitely people that are riding these devices that would never, ever consider riding a bicycle for, you know, a number of reasons that are perceived and, um, you know, probably quite real. But I think that that's the interesting thing, I, I think, with uh, what you're talking about with the, the micromobility potential. Yeah, well, look, I, I'm really, uh, I want to push on one thing around the, the, the cycling, which is I have always thought cycling, you know, people have been active in terms of trying to say, look, we want to build cycling infrastructure. And there is a, some percentage of people who will um, who will shift to cycling. But I think the difference with micromobility is that, um, especially for the shared services, there's just a lot more money in it. And I say this, um, if you look at the cycle share systems, the average price of the, the especially of the Chinese bike share systems, um, but even of the dock share systems, is still really low. Whereas when you start shifting to micromobility, I mean, the trip of a Lime is probably half the cost of an Uber, you know, on a per kilometer basis. Um, and, and so what you start seeing is people can start building businesses where they're really incentivized to go and start pushing this a lot harder. Whereas there was a little bit of that with the cycling lobby, but most of it was advocacy work that was done by nonprofits or, um, you know, community community people who were like, we want to see this. And then there's transport officials who said, yeah, no, absolutely want to see this because it's good for congestion, etc. But there was no business that was there really pushing and saying, guys, we have a solution that actually helps you reduce congestion, actually helps you reduce emissions, actually helps you, you know, get people around your city in a far more effective way. Oh, and it, ha- it turns out we make a heap of money. And if we make a heap of money, then we can, you know, we can actually support more people in the community, we can have more people employed, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which was sort of the case with cycling, but I feel like it gets supercharged with micromobility. And that's, and that's the kind of the key differentiator that I can start to see is that there's just a lot more money in it. Um, and as a result, there's going to be a lot more lobbying power and political power that's going to be asso- associated with it as it grows quicker. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. And I, I think that um, that opportunity and that, uh, I guess, the, the profitability of it, you know, being the big driver, I guess I see that down to the total addressable market. And whether it's a stigma or, you know, this cultural deficit, you know, with cycling, there's just a perception in a lot of Western countries that, well, the total addressable market for people that are cycle is actually quite small. You know, that's the perception that it's only a, a few percent. And and I, and I agree. I think it's the, it's the expanding of, you know, who that target audience is or target market is. It is much broader with micromobility. And, you know, whether that's wholly helping, you know, to turn it from something that's nearly profitable into something that is profitable, uh, I don't know. Uh, but I think it's, it's certainly interesting that, you know, the, the, the scope of possibility just seems so much broader. And I, I find that kind of interesting. Mm. Awesome. Um, I wanted to um, change the tack a little bit uh, to talk through 
data data sharing and MDS standards. Um, we're hoping at some stage to be able to get uh, Salida Reynolds uh, from the Department of Transport in LA uh, on the podcast. She, she came and was speaking at the Micromobility Conference. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback around this uh, MDS standard um, internationally. And I'm really curious if you have anything to offer as you think about it as a regulator, obviously you're not the ones designing the standards, but you're thinking about adopting them. And what are the what are the things that you have to take into consideration when you're looking to um, work with a with a, an operator around being able to have data sharing? And like, how much data do you need? How much data do you want? How much of this is just hey, we can grab it, so let's grab it? Um, you know, what what would you be thinking about as a regulator when you're when you're dealing with this? Um, well, I guess first and foremost the the data question, around, I think, I think is less around how much how much can we grab, how much do we need or want. Um, we, I guess, I looked at and advocated for a very pragmatic position that we should look for the path of least resistance with this. We need to take a bit of a guess on what we think the emerging standard uh, and standards are going to be. Um, I think there is also, you know, MDS seems to have kind of taken. Uh, its place as the de facto uh, standard, and it has had a bit of discussion and controversy recently in the United States around the particular standard. But I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of, of the way standards work. If you look at anything from, you know, DVDs or you know, um, uh, Blu-ray discs or things like that, they kind of haphazardly just tend to fall into place around sort of these de facto standards, and you know, other standards will emerge and but you're ultimately going to end up with sort of a monopoly. And we just um, saw what was kind of emerging as the, as the front runner and said, look, this seems to be pragmatically the, the easiest way to get it and we'll, we'll just require this feed. So, I, you know, I haven't actually done a lot of um, in-depth reading or analysis as to, you know, is it too broad, is it too narrow? Um, we just really took a, took a pragmatic position on saying this is, um, this is what we want. Standards are really good. You know, the other experience I had with standards was, you know, the the GTFS feed, the 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 feed that sort of standardizes all the public transport information around the world for Google Maps and things like that. Before these, you know, universal standardized feeds came along, it was very very difficult to do all this kind of trip planning. So, I'm a big advocate, you know, for for standardization generally, and um, I think there's still a lot more conversation that can happen around the details of those standards, but. Um, I think I think sort of the nature of these business models growing very globally, um, it's going to make sense to have a lot more dialogue across regulators, you know, from countries around the world to kind of agree on these standards. So whether it's up to one particular country to lead it or a consortium or maybe, you know, you need some sort of summit, uh, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's important to just standardize it together. Um, and just at the moment, it seems to be seems to be the MDS standard, and um, that's that's sort of what we're leaning towards. Yeah, interesting. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, we're looking forward to digging more into that over over time um, with with uh, a number of different people coming at it from a number of different angles. Because <laughs> uh, uh, certainly on the there's been a lot of pushback uh, from from Bird, Lime, Jump, uh, and others up in the states um, around what they perceive as sort of an over an overreach uh, from the regulator perspective, but I, I hear you when you say you just wanted to be pragmatic. Um, 
So just before we finish up, are there any sort of messages that um, you think people should know about micromobility in general from the perspective of someone who's trying to manage their city transport? So um, other regulators or uh, entrepreneurs or citizens. And I ask this because you kind of, my sense is that you grok the significance of of micromobility and what it can enable in in a city. Um, in terms of being able to allow it to move more efficiently. But say, for example, someone's listening to this, they've been sent this from um, you know an entrepreneur um, who wants to send it to a regulator who's like, oh, hey, look, this is how they're doing it in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, is there anything that you'd want to say around, f- from your perspective as, a, as someone who's trying to manage that, um, that you think other people should might benefit from hearing? Um, yeah, I think, I think the, the message is, um, you know, from... Any city around the world, you know, is going to have, you know, plans and strategies in place about what kind of city they want, you know, they want to be, you know, what kind of place they want to live in or, you know, what kind of direction they want for the future out of their city. So I guess my, my message would be look at look at these plans and strategies and what the consensus is, uh, you know, around what, what direction you want to be heading in. I think there, there and there are a growing number of similarities across where these cities are heading. They're all kind of accepting that urbanization is the new norm. Um, you know, climate change is this big existential threat um, with rapid urbanization and challenges with climate change. A big part of this is going to be transportation and very few cities are continuing to um, support their growth through single occupant vehicle travel. They're looking at ways to grow smarter and more efficiently. And it's going to mean moving more people with fewer vehicles or smaller vehicles, I suppose, in the case of micromobility. And I think it's about those really strategic uh, conversations and messages. Um, you know, have those conversations with um, you know your peers, you know, and amongst your community, with your um, elected you know community boards or elected members, and and try and try and tease out the alignment where it's possible. Try and look for for you know likely allies or unlikely allies um, to, to build, I guess, momentum around this. Um, I, I mentioned the kind of the cycling thing before because I find it particularly interesting how these grassroots community groups will approach micromobility. Um, you know, early on in the piece, some sort of see, see this thing as a, you know, technological fad or something to be wary of, and other groups have kind of um, aligned themselves with the messaging and they're embracing it to try and achieve those strategic objectives. And, and that's what I guess I'd encourage. I'd, I'd encourage looking for those big strategic opportunities to align, to see where they are, and to, um, I suppose, take a little, you know, a little bit of hand-holding to encourage that risk uh, both ways. So, you know, perhaps for the technology companies or the entrepreneurs, some of that risk might be around the data. It might be around the, the, the data sharing, and that sort of thing with regulators. For the regulators, that risk is going to come in the form of this new type of business model or this permitting f- framework or you know, the trade-off between lots of small little injuries to try and gain you know, big reductions in overall deaths and serious injuries on their, on their transport network. So I suppose that would be kind of my, my concluding kind of message. Um, try, and work, yeah. try and work together, try and see that strategic alignment and look for those opportunities. Cool. Excellent. Well, look, I really, uh, really, really, really appreciate your time. And um, I thank you for, for um, doing what you're doing down in Christchurch. Certainly the, you know, as 
the the way that they've adopted um, and micro mobility, and then and the way that uh, you guys have been really active in supporting it as well. Um, I think it's really really exciting and, and a good example of Christchurch trying to um, you know utilize this this disaster that's um, happened, but then try and turn turn it into something really good with the the um, you know pushing innovation and trying to trying to uh, see a new way forward. So thank you very much. Really appreciate your time, and uh, look forward to having you on at some stage in the future. Yeah, thank you very much, Oliver. It's been my pleasure.